my lovely chai drinkers. How are you? Welcome to episode three of season three of the show, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where the cherry blossoms and azaleas are just bursting all over the city. As COVID continues to ravage America and the world, domestic violence is also surging. According to the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, when the pandemic began, incidents of domestic violence increased 300% in China, 25% in Argentina, 30% in Cyprus, 33% in Singapore, 50% in Brazil and in the UK, where calls to domestic violence hotlines soared. The United Nations has dubbed domestic violence the shadow pandemic and reports that for women around the world, the pandemic has created a double threat, the risk of getting COVID and the danger of being trapped in lockdown with your abuser. One country that has been in the headlines recently over this issue is Turkey, where President Erdogan issued a decree withdrawing from the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women, one of the most important domestic violence treaties. The convention is a legally binding Council of Europe treaty covering domestic violence and seeking to end legal impunity for perpetrators. It covers 34 European countries and took effect in 2014. Turkish women have been loud and clear about their opposition to this move, pouring onto the streets across the country in protest. We are so lucky to have with us today Turkish presenter and journalist Nevsin Mengu to talk to us about the politics of women's rights in Turkey. Mengu started journalism in 2004 at Kanal Türk TV channel and also anchored CNN Turk from 2011 to 2016. Her first book reflects on her observations while living and reporting in Iran, and she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Nevsin. Can I just tell you, I think this is one of the most exciting interviews I've ever had, so thank you so much. I have a massive girl crush on you. <laughs> Thank you. So my first question is, you are such a prolific Turkish journalist, and there's really no one else like you in Turkey. Talk to me about your childhood, and what did you dream of being when you were growing up, when you were a little girl? Oh, wow. I mean, thank you for all these compliments. <laughs> I mean, we have really, let me tell you, hardworking honest, idealistic journalists in Turkey, despite of everything, you know, to be honest. I mean, you got to give them that. A lot of people are just struggling to be able to do their job in whatever medium they can, because what we call mainstream media is now turned into something else. So people are like rather, you know, on YouTube or on Twitter or whatnot, but, you know, they're really doing their best. So you got to give this to Turkish journalists, but, but thank you. So, wow, when I was a child, I didn't, you know, it was not my ideal to become a journalist or something. So it was not like my dream job. I rather wanted to like, you know, I studied political science. So I rather would like, I wanted to like become an academician, actually, in a sense. I wanted to stay in the academy. Yeah, that was my idea. But then, you know, like I finished my graduate study and then I was looking for, you know, post-grad programs and this, that. And I was planning to go to Canada. But then I felt kind of so bored, you know, because they, they wanted these cover letters and thesis proposals and this and that. I was like, you know what? I cannot write like a hundred pages thesis proposal right now. So yeah. let me just go on the field, you know, work a little bit. And then in a couple of years, I'll come back to this. So that's what I thought. And basically, so I started working at a new TV channel. It was back, back then. It was a new TV channel, new opposition, small TV channel. I started there a 
first in Light Shift. Then I wrote that like World News Service. And then I stayed in journalism, you know, since then I'm a journalist. Fantastic. So Turkey has been in the news so much recently. And we know that domestic violence has surged globally all over the world during the pandemic. But Turkey recently pulled out of the Istanbul Convention. What are your thoughts on this move? It's terrible because it's not only Istanbul Convention. So basically, the government in Turkey, apparently now, now they have closer contact to sects, you know, these religious sects in Turkey. Yes. And I've been following their demands and most like this, uh, they're a minority in the society, but, you know, because of this new presidential system, so everything, like even 1%, 2% is too important. So both sides, both the opposition and the government, the, the, the you know, the, the government power, they are trying to gather, you know, whatever they can gather from the society. And obviously, these minority religious sects, this was one of their demands. So they wanted out from Istanbul Convention, and they want related laws amended, changed. So this is just the beginning. Now, after this, their demand is because I've been following what they've been writing and saying. So what they want is they don't want any restriction orders. Because now, if, for example, if a husband you know, beats their wife, Obviously, you know, the court gives restriction order immediately. They don't want that. They think this is against the family. And they don't want to pay any alimony, you know, because according to Turkish law, if you're married to a woman, basically, if the woman has not worked in her life and you, you have kids, then even if you divorce the father is to take care of the children and pay for their expenses and this, that they don't want to do that either. You know, they want to do it the Islam, Islamic way. So what you do in Islam is basically when you're getting married, you you say a mehriya, right? You call mehriya. You say like, I'm giving you, I don't know, like um, 30,000 euros or something. And then uh, when you divorce, you're out. You give whatever this the woman has to stay with these 30,000 euros or whatnot. So they want that sort of, a, you know. And uh, basically, they don't want police or courts get involved in domestic violence because they think, you know, family is more sacred, whatever, even if there's violence within the family, the state has nothing to do about that. This is what they want. And also, there's one other really important item for them. They want, like, according to Islam, if a girl had menstruation, she can get married. She can, you know. So basically... They want that too. They want to marry 13, 14 year old yeah. girls. Wow. So after Turkey pulled out of this convention, I mean, these were not legal in Turkey, even even Turkey was not in the convention, but they want these laws to be changed immediately also. And I bet Mr. Erdogan will be for this. This will come gradually because Mr. Erdogan is now, he is basically campaigning for a whole new constitution. Wow. And my expectation is he is going to call for the abolishment of laicism in the new constitution, and then they're going to change the laws and this and that. What do you think happened to Erdogan? I mean, I remember, you know, I went to school, I I went to college with a lot of Turkish friends. I have a lot of great Turkish friends. We used to call them the Turkish mafia, but we love them so much. (laughs) But I remember, I remember Erdogan being quite progressive. What happened to joining the EU and being all about Turkey being a part of Europe? What happened to him? I mean, listen, Anushay, like 20 years corrupts everyone. 
right? Yeah. Like if you're more in 20 years, he, first of all, he got old. He's really old, basically. <laughs> and also, I mean, he's a conservative guy at the end of the day. I mean, obviously, guys, I mean, not for foreigners and for people following Turkey from outside. It's not like that. But, like, I know where he comes from, the, the, the circles, you know, the environment, people around him. These are conservative people at the end of the day. So in the beginning, he, he, routed, he routed for, like, a little bit liberalism a little bit because it worked for him, you know. He saw, you know, when he talked about like freedoms and democracy and this and that, it worked for him back then. He had these relations with the European leaders and this and that, it was working. But then, especially after Gezi incident, he became very paranoid because in Gezi, basically in 2013, we've seen uh, like uh, people who are for democracy uprising against Erdogan and the government back then. Yes. Yeah. It was kind of like uh, the Arab Spring impact was happening. I wrote about this. I remember Gazi Park, right, where the trees are. Exactly. So and then so Erdogan saw Europeans, people in Europe or the politicians in Europe were standing with the protesters and he became yeah. utterly paranoid. And I think then he thought afterwards that, you know, he'd be toppled like. Yeah. Maybe Mubarak or something. He, he got mm-hmm. and then he started changing. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. I look what happened in Syria, right? <laughs> Some leaders had zero tolerance. So during my research, I was reading about truly horrific violent acts against women, you know, murdered, shot in broad daylight. Yeah. And some publications describe the situation in Turkey as a, quote, plague of femicides. Mm. So why is Erdogan doing this now to protect women even less in times of what is obviously a time of crisis? I mean, I, I was born and raised in Bangladesh. So, I mean, I get it. I get it when you don't value women's rights and, and women's lives. But what is he trying to do? Like push Turkish women back to the Stone Age? Well, I mean, um, for he himself, I think his main goal is to stay in power. So he is going to be in an alliance with whomever is necessary for that. He's at this point now. He cannot be toppled. He's totally, I mean, or he cannot be, you know, like elected out of power in that sense. He's, he's very, like, he's utterly afraid of that. So what he's going to try to do is get as much as support from different elements of the, in, in the society. So he's routing for that right now. So this minority, as I said in the beginning, this 1%, 2%, he needs them. So he's going to do whatever they tell him to do. And also, I think he's becoming more conservative the more he ages. This happens to all of us, right? The, like the more we age, usually, I mean, the more conservative we get. So what they think is more stubborn, stubborn too, right? And conservative, like, uh, you know, they think people like Erdogan and his circles, they think basically if women is empowered too much, then the family disappears right because i mean imagine you, you you don't earn your own money like you or like in such a society you don't have any basic freedoms so your only job is being a mother you'd stay in the family no matter what even if there's violence you know even if there's domestic violence you'd stay because you have to but once women there's emancipation of women once we're in the workforce like once we're like going to school or whatever universities like working like uh, quote-unquote men, then we have our own power and we don't have to take it, you know. We can just leave them, whatever. Yes. They're afraid of that, first of all. And also they're really afraid of this, I think, 
this genderless society, I mean, it's coming, like it or not, right? That's what I'm sensing. This genderless society is, is coming, basically. Mm-hmm. And they're utterly afraid of that too, his circles. I don't think Erdogan really understands what this, you know, being bi-gender or genderless is. Yeah. But his circles, people around him are utterly afraid of that. They're like, what is that? Like, woman has to be woman and men has to be men. I mean, these guys are Islamists at the end of the day. Although family is a relatively modern concept, they think it always existed, right? Because they understand the world through the paradigm of Islam and Islamism. So they think, you know, it's from the, from the whatever, you know. Um, yeah, God. <laughs> and we should protect this, the family as it is, whatever. They're just afraid of change. They're afraid of change utterly and they, they, they're reacting in such a way. Wow. So you wrote early last year during the lockdown about maybe, I really loved this article you wrote, about maybe Turkish men finally understanding the restrictions of movement that so many women around the world know. You know, you were worried even about yourself going jogging late at night. I mean, these are things women all over the world. Right. I mean, it's a part of our lives, basically. Exactly. You cannot go out on your own at 10 p.m. in the evening, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Now men are facing it. Men are like, you know, now now it's forbidden for them and they understand the discomfort that this gives you. You have to plan your life, right? You Mm -hmm. have to plan your life according to that, you know. I cannot go out after this, so I have to do this before that, you know, like you have to keep planning. Like say I have an early meeting, but I go to jog early in the morning. But if the sun hasn't risen yet, is it really safe for me? So I cannot really go out on a jog that day. You know, there are these restrictions that we have to live. Do you think these COVID restrictions on movement have taught Turkish men anything? Do you think they've learned anything or are they just like, whatever? <laughs> well, do you know what? I hope it did. The thing is, Turkish society is deeply fragmented. I mean, we talk about the fragmentation in the United States and the polarization. But I, I mean, the, 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 the one that we have in Turkey is much stronger and deeper. So mm. seriously, one side of the society is like you think you're living in Sweden or Norway. That's how people are that's how they live that's how they think and then you know there's the other part of the society i don't know they're like as conservative as wahhabis in saudi arabia i swear you know there's this deep fragmentation and there's always this that there had been this clash between the two you know in my neighborhood men in my like around me are obviously they're mostly feminists you know and then they understand women's rights and human rights and this and that but like if i change a neighborhood even in istanbul you know i'd come across men who say basically of course women are inferior they're to stay at home and just become mothers you know, otherwise the society will be corrupted. So that's our problem, I think. Wow. That is a perfect description. Wow. I never thought about the Saudi comparison. So you recently wrote an article based on a poll about Turkish people not wanting democracy. And you write... Quote, I believe the term democracy has been worn out in Turkey. The proper definition of democracy and what it truly represents has been blurred. Perhaps another poll should be carried out to investigate what people really understand from democracy and see how they react when asked about the perseverance or reinstatement of basic democratic values. Tell me more about what you meant when when you wrote this, when you say this. Anushe, when Erdogan was coming to power at party, they used the term democracy a lot, you know. 
they always said democracy. And then by using the term democracy, they brought the most authoritarian regime, you know. Yes. Because they were faced. So basically for the opposition, when you say democracy, I mean, we're like, oh my God, basically, you know. It comes like Erdogan is associated with the term democracy. <laughs> democracy needs rebranding in Turkey. Holy. <laughs> And and then there had been this coup attempt, you know, this uh, purchase attempt in yes. July. And some people who took onto the streets against the coup attempt, uh, they also used democracy. They said, like, they they called themselves lovers of democracy, defenders of democracy. They took to the streets for, for defending democracy. Actually, uh, that's a lie. They did not go out on the street to defend democracy. They went out on the street to defend Erdogan's government. Yes. Basically. Wow. Because they, these people, they don't like, they don't believe in 101 of democracy or they don't, you know. So, yeah. So also democracy was worn out in that sense. Also, it was used so much by Erdoganists, like democracy, this democracy that, yeah, dude, but like, you don't mean, you don't really mean democracy when you say democracy. So that's most like the story. You know, so th- this is why democracy has been worn out and pe- people are worn out. Um, and now Erdogan, but now actually it's interesting because he had been using this term democracy a lot, but for the last three, four years, he's not using this term anymore. He even, he doesn't even need to, you know, he was using the term democracy to make use of it. But now he doesn't even need that. He, like he's saying now, like a stronger presidential system, a stronger system, a stronger state. So he even passed that phase, basically. And we have been losing democracy day by day. Like every day is becoming worse, to be blunt. Wow. Do you think Erdogan was emboldened by someone seeing someone like Trump in power? Do you think that gave strong men around the world kind of a memo like, go for it? Of course, yeah. Of course, uh, obviously. I mean, because they thought, you know, back when I remember when Trump was in power, they thought they could play him. They thought, like, okay, we know this guy's playbook, and he does whatever we say. We give him something, God knows, God knows what, you know, and then he gives something to us. They did whatever, and as soon as Biden was elected, they backtracked. And <laughs> Yeah. Basically, you know, they were doing these explorations in the in the Mediterranean, whatnot. They were pushing for it. They were bullying, you know, Greece and this and that. And once Biden was elected, they're like, okay, we're not like yeah. doing these explorations anymore. Let's sit down <laughs> and you know, be, yeah. you know, like they respond when there is a when there is a that sort of that sort of governments or regimes, whatever you call them, are kind of you know you're familiar. Yeah. Once they see a reaction, they backtrack. But once they don't see, re, you know, reaction, they do the opposite. And they even sell this to, to the domestic public. Like, they sell this, like, you see, America is doing whatever we say. They're they're kneeling to us. We're at this strong. So whenever, you know, with the authoritarian governments, when the, the, the democratic world and the democracies, they come and they try to negotiate with that sort of authoritarian governments, Actually, they think, you know, you know, there are these two theories, you know, what to do, like engage them or isolate them. So like, oh, let's engage with them. Let's talk. And then we can just, you know, turn them to democracy a little bit. I don't think it works that way, basically, you know, because then these authoritarian systems think, okay, they are talking to us because they have to, because, you know, we have some sort of strength and we can use this against them. And this is what AK Party has been doing up until now. I mean, during Trump's tenure. Wow. That's excellent analysis. 
I'm taking notes while you talk, by the way. Excellent analysis. You really are <laughs> me today. Um, so early on in your career, you were a correspondent in Tehran, in Iran. And my husband's actually Persian. But you oh, wrote, cool. yeah, American, but, you know, first generation. Yeah. Um, so you wrote in your book that, quote, for both Turkish and Iranian women, we have a long and challenging road ahead. We've been locked into our homes for centuries, and we've just recently started to be in every area of new life. We all have a semi-visible glass ceiling above our heads, and you'll have to make a lot of effort to break it. We need to make the most of our work. We need to make the least concessions. First of all, I love that quote. I love it. I'm a huge feminist, so I absolutely love it. But uh, tell me what it was like living and working as a journalist there, because Iranian women, you know, have a really strong feminist movement. Yeah. But I think obviously, like everybody else in that society are really, you know, limited by their government. But what it was, what was it like living and working there? It's been years now. I was there 2009, you know, during this election, the Greenway and this rigged election and whatnot. So it was, it was rather about that. And people have been resisting to the outcome of that rigged election back then when Ahmadinejad was elected. But you know what, I mean, in this region back then, they basically rigged the election to make Ahmadinejad sit in the presidential chair. But now he's ousted from the regime. He's like a persona non grata, you know, he's just tweeting in, in English or something. He's on Twitter and nobody cares. He's, he's nowhere near the Hamane or that you know yeah so that's you know that tells you something about how politics works here yes you know seriously i mean working in iran as a journalist was really hard basically it's hard obviously i mean you cannot cover every story you know they don't like so for every story that you're going to do you have to get like another permission letter from irshad you know there's this irshad ministry irshad means how would you define it? Ershad basically checks something is according to Islam, right? Something like that. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. Oh, God. Sure. And then they, like, there's another bureau under Ershad ministry and they take care of the, you know, media. Oh. And for every story that you're going to do, you can, you know, yeah. you got to get a permission letter and whatnot. Yeah. So basically, which means you cannot do much, you know. Yeah. That's one part of it. But Iran was really, you know, really stressful. And I, I always, I mean, but the Iranian people are great. Seriously, they're yes. like, they're really helping. And, but the regime has turned people into, they're, they're discreet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And they not always tell you the truth in the sense that because yes. for them. Yeah. That is so true. And they have like a double life, you know, they have their life out and then kind of like an underground life. And it's very difficult to get like their trust, understandably so, because I think they're traumatized of by their government. And you know what, like, it's so it's like, uh, I thought, I mean, it's, I think still, it's just like, you know, Cold War Soviets, you never know who's who. Yes. You know, you who talks to the regime who talk, you know you cannot really trust anyone yeah oh, that's really hard like in turkey still still like you know if somebody's an erdoganist and who's gonna you know but there it's like everybody can be anybody like it's it's really stressful there but it's as a journalist it was a terrific experience mm-hmm. you know what what's stressing like i i also like followed like 2008 war in gaza so when i was leaving gaza strip i thought you know I'm leaving, and I did my story. <laughs> I'm leaving, but these people, are they going to stay here for the rest of their lives? And that's what I thought about Iran also. Like, these people are going to 
they're going to stay here. They have nowhere to go, you know, in that sense. It's, it's kind of, it really gets to me, you know, mm-hmm. because when you journal, we go there, we cover something. Sometimes, you know, you try hard not to be a part of the story. You try hard to stay impartial, but like in some cases, it's impossible to stay impartial. Like when you, yes. you know, how are you going to, what is impartiality? I mean, I don't, exactly. I'm for democracy. I'm for the rights. Basically, I, I will not, I'm, I refuse to be impartial about that. Yes. But you, know, you try whatever you can do. And then, but then it finishes for you, right? You leave it, you go, co- you go to cover another story. But these people are still in that. So that's, you know, that's the yeah. hardest part, I think, being a journalist. Oh, that is so true. So you have reported, as you just said, from Gaza, but you've also reported from Afghanistan, Jordan, Kuwait, amongst many other countries. What motivates and inspires you to do the work that you do? I don't know. I mean, just being able to do my job, I think. I always think, you know, I'm, I'm, for example, I'm thinking once this COVID is over, I was like planning to go to Finland, maybe like find some. Really? <laughs> yeah, leave the leave the Middle East and leave the Islamic world. Go to Finland. Oh yeah, such a big deal. No, but what I mean is because it's governed totally by women now. Yes, very feminist. Yes, just go there and like, cover everything. Like, how does it work when women cover it? You know, this really intrigues me. For example, I really want to do that. I once got, when Mitt Romney was like the presidential candidate, if you remember back then, it's been I don't know ten years or something. Yes, yes. Uh, he was a Mormon. So I. <laughs> This really intrigues me. Wow, what is what an interesting. I went to the United States. I found like a link. And then I went into a Mormon church. Actually, they let me in. That was also very interesting. Because normally they don't let non-Mormons into a Mormon yes. church, right? Yes. But Mormons are so American. It's like basically they, they become priests in turns, right? Yes. Like so. And so there was a there was a priest guy. He was also into real estate. And I said, "Listen, I'm coming from a Muslim country. These people don't know anything about Mormonism. Uh, let me just show show them." You know. And he was like, "Okay, you know what? Get in." And we we got in. Like we have all these video from a Mormon church and this and that. So I was like, "Yeah, that's a good job." But it, I mean, it also makes me understand. Like I go somewhere. I'm really curious. You know what's that? What's happening here? And then I find out. And then I also. Yeah, show this to people like, hey, guys, there's a whole different world, whole different people out there. And this is happening also. This this kind of gives me the motivation, I think. Yes. So your curiosity drives you. I guess, yeah. That is such a cool story, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know if you make it to Finland. That's awesome. Just don't go in the winter. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so my last question to you is, what is your advice to women, to younger women who, you know, want to break out in the journalism field? What would you say to them? Just be strong. I mean, well, it's easy. Well, just what does it mean? Be strong. Just motivate yourself. Tell yourself every morning that you're strong enough. Every morning, like when you wake up, look at the mirror, you say, I'm, I'm strong enough. Uh, if you say it enough, you really become strong. So I think that would be my, because because life is hard. Life is really hard, you know, wherever you are, I think, in whatever you do, especially if you're a woman. Yes. You know, it's hard, but you know what? You you got to be strong because of the, then other, otherwise you cannot make it basically. Yeah. You cannot make it. I mean, you can't make it. You cannot be yourself. You cannot do whatever you like. So to do that every morning, you remind yourself that you are strong. That could be my advice to me. 
That is fantastic advice and such a great place to, to end the interview. Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure being your guest. <laughs> fantastic. I'll speak to you soon, Nessie. Thank you so much. Why are religious extremists so against women's rights and safety? It seems wherever they are in the world, their opposition to women's empowerment remains consistent because targeting women's rights is one of the most visible and effective ways to exert their power in society. But in the year 2021, women are not going anywhere quietly. And as the women in Turkey are showing the world, we are not going anywhere without a fight. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. After our hack attempt, we are no longer on Facebook, which has been great. <laughs> you can stream us on all major podcast platforms, check us out on Linktree, YouTube, or make life simple. Just visit us on spillingchai.com. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai. Chai.